1: This
0: is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. This morning, firefighters are battling the river fire about 30 miles southwest of Yosemite. It's burned more than 9,000 acres and is only 10% contained. The blaze, driven by high winds, has forced 400 people to flee their homes. Air quality regulators have issued an alert for parts of the San Joaquin Valley because of the smoke. San Jose State Wildfire Interdisciplinary Research Center Dr. Director Craig Clements says it's not just the drought and heat wave that are causing the fires growth. The fingerprints of climate change are all over the western U.S. fires. There's no doubt about that. But there's also, you know, 100 years of uh, fire suppression. We need to have more prescribed fire. We need more forest management. Meanwhile, crews have been able to get a better handle on the state's largest wildfire, burning north of Lake Tahoe. The Beckworth Complex fire has burned more than 91,000 acres and is now 26% contained. Some of the 3,000 residents who were forced to evacuate because of the blaze have now been allowed to return home. Cal Fire officials say more than 142,000 acres have burned in California so far this year. That compares to 39 thousand acres over the same period of time last year. Turning now to politics, because of a judge's ruling, Governor Gavin Newsom will not be able to let voters know he's a Democrat on the recall election ballot in September. KQED Politics editor Scott Schaefer has more. The decision stems from a lawsuit filed by Newsom against Secretary of State Shirley Weber. The state's top election official denied the governor's request to include his Democratic Party affiliation on the ballot because he failed to file the proper paperwork on time. In an 11-page decision Monday, Judge James Arguez said the Secretary of State is not compelled to grant the governor's request. The lawsuit filed by Newsom two weeks ago acknowledges that his attorneys erred by not including his preferred party designation when it was due, calling it an inadvertent but good-faith mistake. That mistake will not be undone. Every California voter will receive a mail-in ballot in mid-August. It will now be up to the governor's campaign to make sure voters know he's a Democrat before the election. For the California Report, I'm Scott Schaefer. Anyone in California who's been paying attention to unemployment issues has probably heard about this huge backlog of unpaid unemployment claims at the state's Employment Development Department, or EDD. The California Report's Mary Franklin Harvin has been following the story and came across some anomalies in the numbers. Before we talk about what you found, Mary Franklin, can you just remind us quickly what the backlog consists of?
2: The backlog consists of claims that have not been paid. EDD actually keeps track of these claims on a dashboard that the agency updates every Thursday. So those of us who are following this story are usually sitting there refreshing our screens on Thursdays. And the size of that backlog varies depending upon who you ask. If you ask EDD, the agency says that the backlog only consists of claims that have been pending EDD action. So the the claim needs action from the agency for 21 days or more. Now there are over 215,000 of those right now. But there's also another group and these are claims that are in limbo because they're waiting on action from applicants. So for instance, if your claim got frozen because EDD didn't have information from you that it needed, like some sort of identification information, and because of that your claim looks suspicious to them, you might be in this pool of claims.
0: Got it. So, how many unemployment claims are in that particular group?
2: As of this week, there are a little over 890,000.
0: So, Mary Franklin, you noticed some irregularities in information presented for that group when those figures were posted on the EDD website last Thursday, right?
2: Yeah, so when I was doing my weekly refreshing and the new numbers did finally come up, and I know it's a little wonky, but basically I looked at the data and noticed that it looked a lot lower, meaning EDD was reporting fewer claims pending than I had noticed in previous weeks for weeks that they had already reported. And there's a great CalMatters reporter, Emily Hoven, who keeps a running log of this data on her Twitter. So I quickly went and checked her Twitter for the previous few weeks' data and noticed that, yes, there was a discrepancy of well over 100,000 claims on some of the previous weeks. So I reached out to EDD's main spokesperson, Lori Levy, to ask her about that discrepancy.
0: And how did she explain the discrepancy?
2: She said that it was an inadvertent posting. She also told me that... A big chunk of the claims in that 890,000 or more group had been lingering for 120 days or more, and you know that goes into why they don't, why they think it's misleading to include those in the backlog.
0: So just help me out here: Why is this important? If there's one set of numbers versus another set of numbers, and one set of unemployment claims figures is actually lower, I think that might be interpreted as a good thing. But but you explain it to me.
2: Yeah, I know. If you're not an EDD nerd like me, it probably doesn't seem very interesting, but basically... One big reason I was interested was because if it's true that a vast majority of those 890,000 something claims have actually been languishing for over 120 days, then many of those people or many of those claims might have been abandoned because people got back to work and they don't need their unemployment benefits anymore. But unfortunately, it could also mean that many people, and we do know that this has been happening, have been spending months trying to get through to EDD to get the agency information it has asked for, you know, it could also mean that some of the claims were fraudulent and that the people who filed them abandoned them once they were asked for additional information.
0: All right, that is The California Report's Mary Franklin Harvin, who's been doing some excellent reporting on the state's EDD program. Mary Franklin, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you, Saul.
0: California health officials have backtracked on how to enforce masking rules at schools in the fall. Yesterday, the state issued a mandate saying that K-12 through students who aren't wearing a mask would be barred from the classroom, but would be offered alternative educational opportunities. Now, the state will leave it up to schools to decide how to handle students who aren't wearing face coverings. KQED's Julia McAvoy reports.
3: Only students with specific medical exemptions or disabilities that prevent them from wearing a mask will be exempt under the new rules, which take effect immediately. California is taking a stricter approach than the CDC's latest recommendations, which do not call for universal masking. Dr. Naomi Bardock heads the state's Safe Schools for All plan, the experts who help districts provide in-person school as safely as possible. Bardock says CDC rules allow older students to be masked or unmasked masked and that's a problem.
4: It really opens up the possibility of stigma, of bullying.
3: It's a contentious topic masks is and so we actually would like to allow schools to open in a way that is actually a less controversial environment. The state calls universal masking the best way to both avoid the need for physical distancing in classrooms and also help head off the spread of variants. Schools will need to provide face coverings for kids who don't have them. And schools should also find a way to educate students who won't wear a mask if they aren't allowed on campus. Masks will be optional outdoors at schools. For the California Report, I'm Julia McAvoy. If you
0: think we can start relaxing our guard when it comes to the coronavirus pandemic, just consider these numbers. In Los Angeles County, public health officials say there have now been four straight days in which more than a thousand new COVID cases have been reported daily. And over 99% of these new cases have occurred among people who are still unvaccinated. Officials are also seeing a rise in the number of people who are becoming seriously ill because of COVID. As hospitalizations and the county are nearing 400 for the first time in months. But so far, the death rate has remained relatively low. In neighboring Orange County, hospitalizations have more than doubled over the past two weeks. While the numbers are concerning, they are still far short of the massive surge in cases during the fall and winter. Let's turn to tech and liberty. Long before the existence of Twitter, Facebook, and Google, and revelations about the government harvesting Americans' personal data, the San Francisco-based Electronic Frontier Foundation, or EFF, was fighting for people's civil rights and privacy online. The EFF is the leading U.S. nonprofit defending people's civil liberties in the digital realm. And after a bit of a delay because of the pandemic, it's celebrating its 30th anniversary. The California Report, Talk to the EFF's executive director, Cindy Cohen, about its work and how it's changed over the decades.
4: It's shifted a lot in the last 30 years. I I think EFF has grown along with the internet, um, both in terms of the size of the organization and in terms of the issues that we've needed to address. You know, the first rough decade was really focused on making sure that the internet was respected as a place of free speech. Um, as a place where we could have privacy. And the, the threats to it were largely from the government. So, you know, we worked to free up encryption so that you could have a private conversation online. We worked to make sure that the internet was recognized as a place of free speech right away. You know, it took 40 years for movies to be recognized as free speech. We only got video games recognized in 2011, Um, but the internet was recognized by the Supreme court as a place of free speech, you know, almost in its infancy for, for, for popular use. And that's, you know, that didn't just happen. That was a lot of work to try to frame the digital revolution in a way that would make sure that we had our constitutional rights.
0: And if we fast forward to today, are you more concerned about big tech companies being a threat to civil liberties than big government?
4: Well, I think that they are They're working together. I think that one of the things that is a little phony is this idea that there's a difference. I mean, when the government wants to surveil us, they go to the companies, right? It's the fact that Google knows everything about you. That is why the government can go to them and do these things mm-hmm. called reverse warrants, where they get everybody, who's in a particular location first and then trying to sort out who they're looking for second. Or the NSA can go to AT&T and tap into the network and look at everybody's traffic as it goes by and pick out what they want second. The good news is that the Supreme Court is starting to recognize some of this. They have said they're chipping away at this thing called the third-party doctrine that says that when you give your information to a company, you relinquish all Fourth Amendment interests in it. And the Supreme Court is has signaled pretty clearly that that's, that's a doctrine that's on its way out. So there is some good news there. And we're beginning to see privacy laws. We have a lot more work to go. But I, 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 don't, I don't think the distinction really matters very much for most of the things that people care about.
0: I'd like to turn to a California-centric issue. Uh, This year, the state started enacting the California Consumer Privacy Act, which makes it easier for people to find out what kind of information private companies are collecting about them online and petition to have it deleted. EFF chose not to support the act. Can you tell me why and how you feel about it now?
4: You know, we were neutral on the law. We thought it had some loopholes in it that made us nervous, and 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 we were we were also worried that that there were you know we had a, a bill that we thought that was better called the Privacy for All bill. I I, I think the fact that the that the people of the state of California continue to vote for privacy is a good thing. Now we need to make sure that the thing they're voting for will actually give them what they want, or else people are going to feel disempowered. And I think the jury's still out on the new law and how that's going to come out. But uh, but we're going to work with whatever gets passed to try to push it for as much privacy as possible. We're not sitting on the sidelines here at all.
0: All right. That is Cindy Cohen, the executive director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is observing its 30th anniversary. Cindy, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Thank you so much. I'm a huge fan of the California report, so right. this is very exciting for me.
0: And that is the California Report for Tuesday, July 13th for a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening, and have
1: a great day. Support for the California Report comes from Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories. In stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing defendable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org.